Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. My name is Oliver Lawrence. I spent over 12 years as a police officer serving in some of the harshest environments Australia has to offer. Now working as a senior investigator, security intelligence and crisis management expert in London, I've had the chance to meet and speak with some of the brave men and women of law enforcement who found themselves at the front line of the world's most infamous investigations and global incidents. From the underworld of bikey gangs and the mafia to terrorist attacks of unthinkable magnitude. In this series, I'll sit down with these brave men and women to hear their first-hand accounts of these events and how they got there. Welcome to Protect and Serve. This just in, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. Killer Zelfadine Rezji has just entered the hotel grounds. He's looking for targets. The outcome in U.S. District Court today was not good for New Jersey boss Tony Pro Provenzano. Just how seriously the police are taking claims of abuse at the hands of Jimmy Savile came into sharp focus. In the U.K., police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. Earth. and freedom will be defended. Not many police officers can boast my next guest achievement of 42 years in British policing. From his time in the British Transport Police to the West Midlands and Cyprus, retired Chief Superintendent Michael Layton, QPM, has seen his fair share of the challenges that policing can present during his four decades of policing service. In the early days, he was tasked to carry out such duties as overseeing the security of the coffin containing a deceased IRA terrorist, to his later work investigating football hooligans in the north and property offence criminals across the West Midlands. Policing has advanced so much in the way crimes are investigated, but when we wind back the clock and analyse how officers like Michael and his colleagues had to carry out their investigations with limited forensic capability and technology to aid them, their achievements in securing convictions for some of the most serious crimes are an incredible reflection on the hard work and sacrifices these officers made to make a difference in society. During this episode of Protect and Serve, Michael and I revisit this world of policing, football hooligans and much more. All this on Protect and Serve. Well, welcome to another episode of Protect and Serve, and another week and another fantastic guest. And this week, we're heading slightly north of the United Kingdom. We're heading up to the Midlands. We're heading up to Birmingham. 
because crime doesn't just happen in southeast London. It doesn't. It's not just exclusive to the inner circles of the M25. Crime happens all over the United Kingdom. And there are plenty of men and women that will be coming on the show in the coming weeks will be able to demonstrate that over their years of policing, they've been involved in some of the biggest and most notable matters in different parts of the world. Scotland's going to be another one that I'm looking forward to exploring because it's another part of the country that um, we don't often look at or don't hear about. So I'm looking forward to exploring it. But without um, further ado, I want to introduce former Chief Superintendent Michael Layton, recipient of the QPM and served in policing for over 43 years. Quite an incredible milestone. Michael, welcome to the podcast this afternoon. How are you? Uh, I'm well, thanks, Ollie, and uh, thanks for having me on the, the programme today. No, it's an absolute pleasure to have you. Now, like every good detective, you'll know this, we like to start at the beginning of a story. And my first question to you is, why policing? Um, I, uh, as a teenager, I spent many years in the in the army cadets, and uh, I enjoyed being part of a team. I enjoyed the, the discipline, the, the, the uniform, the sort of... Uh, belonging to an organisation. So I, th- I suppose m- my thoughts as I approached leaving school was always it's either going to be the, the military or, or, or the police service. And um, um, even for some strange reason, I even enjoyed bullying my boots. But um, um, So uh, I, I plumped for the police service eventually, applied for Birmingham City Police as it was then, um, to be a police cadet at the age of 16 on leaving school. And... Um, Unfortunately, they said I was underweight. It's 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 a condition I've managed to rectify over the years. But um, <laughs> at that particular time, it it uh, it was a problem. So, um, cutting a very long story short, I um, I applied for the British Transport Police and uh, had an interview in in Manchester. And um, thankfully, they uh, they took me on, and I uh, subsequently became a a police cadet at Birmingham. And um, uh, had a, a an absolute great introduction to the police service through that that um, that that role. We we've spoken to an awful lot of men and women from all different types of policing backgrounds. But before we go into kind of more personal stuff around your training, etc., just for the purposes of our listeners who may not be familiar with BTP or British Transport Police as we know them, what is fundamentally their role in UK policing? Well. Uh, I, th- I think the fundamental difference uh, is that they're a national police force. Um, so, uh, so they cover um, um, England, Scotland and Wales. Um, historically, they used to cover Northern, Northern Ireland as well, but uh, not so for many years. Um, I suppose going back to the time when I joined in the in the 70s, um, they were probably more affectionately known by many home office forces as uh, railway police. But the job was much wider than that. The, uh, one time they used to cover the docks, um, also, uh, canals, all sorts of um, um, uh, uh, different jurisdiction aspects. And, and actually, interestingly enough, the, the BTP were the first force in 1908 to, to actually um, uh, start training police dogs. Um, oh, wow. So, which were predominantly initially used on, in um, in um, freight sort of areas and on docks. Um, but um, I mean, coming back to today, the British Transport Police today is very much seen as a, a hugely professional force. It's got firearms officers. Every aspect of policing um, is carried out on the railways or within that jurisdiction. Um, and obviously, counter-terrorism, terrorism. 
plays a huge part. So they're, they're, they're very much a part of modern-day policing. You marched through the gates of the training facilities of BTP in 1968. What was that feeling like walking in as a young man ready to take on what is often described as quite a complex vocation? Uh, Pretty daunting. Um, BTP had their own training school, but initially, um, the initial courses, um, we would always go uh, to home office training centres. And I initially went to a place called Dishforth in North Yorkshire, which is an old RAF base. And um, fascinating place, really, in the middle of nowhere. Um, we used to do drilling in the huge aircraft hangars mm. and slept in dormitories. And um, again, as I say, the label of railway police sort of followed me there a little bit. And um, I think much to the um, surprise of, of uh, some of the instructors, I actually came top of the course in terms of the academic exams. So uh, um, that was quite satisfying. But um uh, a bit of a shock to the system. Lots to get on, you know. Lots to learn. Lots of um, lots of definitions that we all like in those days had to learn off off pat. But equally, um, the beginning of that sense of belonging to a family. Uh, I, I think it's something that's never left me over all the years. But you know, the police service is, is most definitely a family. Uh, and sometimes families fall out. Sometimes families make mistakes. Um, but but you never lose that common bond. I don't think. One thing I always reflect on with a lot of my guests is when they choose to pursue this this career in policing, it can have a couple of effects on friends and family, one of caution and wariness as to kind of what does this mean for us as a family or what does this mean for our friendship in terms of you're going to pick me up if I don't wear my seatbelt or am I now going to have to be careful how I drive? You know, you're going to be watching every move when I'm in the pub. What was your family's and friends' reactions when you told them that you were going to be pursuing this career? Uh, totally supportive. Um, um, my father is uh, no longer with us now, but um, he was um, for a while a special constable within the Birmingham City Police. And one of his ambitions, which unfortunately he wasn't able to reach, was actually to become a regular officer. So he was hugely supportive, and um, it, it was pretty seamless, really. I. I um, uh, I I didn't have a huge circle of friends, and um, I, I certainly didn't lose any. And and um, that that you know, as as I progressed past training, um, my shift uh, after I was posted, you know, you know, they they quickly became my friends and acquaintances. You know, you openly say uh, in the um, material that you've sent across me to have a bit of read of that you disliked school. It wasn't something that you got on well with naturally. And that you did, although you walked away with five O levels and were still very successful at it, it wasn't something that you enjoyed. How did you find? Obviously, you you came top in your class in terms of the academic component of the training that you were going through. But how did you find both the physical and the academic side of the initial training part of policing? Um, I, I I didn't. Uh, you're quite right. I I I really disliked school intensely. I couldn't wait <laughs> to leave. Um, and I and I was. Uh, uh, and not, I was not um, a natural studier, but uh, but I, I, most of my life I've always been pretty task orientated. So my approach to anything was, you know, if this if this is the task, then it's got to be done. And um, you know, it's it's helped me throughout my career. Really, I, I you know, I'm, I'm I I'm really determined to, you know, and have been determined to get the sort of best out of any situation. So 
Um, I didn't find this studying hard. We were all in the same boat. Um, uh, when I when I um, uh, when I got into the police service, uh, you know, I could have had opportunity to do some further education as a cadet, but I didn't take them up. I, I really didn't want to. You know, I wanted to get into as much operational policing, get as much practical experience as I could, and. I didn't want to to go down the route of further education, and indeed, in later life as a senior officer, again I chose um, deliberately chose not to progress uh, down a, a degree route. Although I have every respect for people who work hard to achieve that um, qualification, it, it just wasn't something that I was attracted to. And one important thing I wanted to cover off on is 1968. You. You graduate, you're given your warrant card, you, you hold the position of constable. That must have been an incredibly proud day for you and your family to witness that kind of evolution for you into this really quite serious vocation that you're looking forward to undertaking. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's actually, I say 68 was when I was a cadet, 71 was when I became a PC. Yeah. Um, and, um, and yeah, you know, I mean, I I look back on those days with fond memories, you know, the the you know the police force um has changed in many ways uh, many ways for the positive but in other ways you know my memories are you know everyone wore their hats um we all wore helmets if we were out on the streets walking we wore tunics um and um and 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 you know trousers were pressed there was a a, a, a different sort of style of approach in terms of um the discipline of the organization um but huge pride. I, 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 after even after forty-three years, whilst I wouldn't say every day was a perfect day, I, I retain huge pride in the police service in in the UK and um, will will remain so for life. I, I, I've never, I'm not one of these retired officers who has developed a sort of a, a negative spin on 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 a on a career that for me created huge opportunities and and um and so i i remain a, a firm supporter of, of policing as a whole what was it like when you first graduate because looking at your biography here in terms of your time with btp you were there for 12 months before you am i right moved across to join the birmingham city police is that right that's right yeah yeah so, so, so when you're in those first twelve months of experience with BTP, was there any sort of examples that you can give where it was fairly evident to you that policing was going to provide you with challenges, such as dealing with um, trauma? Uh, and I, I think historically, um, you know, BTP deals with an awful lot of uh, sudden death and fatalities on railway lines, on undergrounds, and on public services. How did you overcome some of those challenges as a young man? Uh, as a as a as a nineteen year old, the first uh, sudden death I attended on the railway was at a place called Smethwick, and um, it was a case of suicide. I won't go into too much detail, but the the person actually lay on the railway line with their head on on one of the rails, and um, um, and um, the train went over the body, um, and um, we were faced with having to recover parts of parts of the body on the line so I was just a young 19 year old we had to um obviously deal with the body with with respect and sensitivity 
um, get get the body up in a, a very steep railway embankment, and then deal with, deal with the aftermath in terms of going to um, the mortuary and 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 dealing with families. Um, it's a difficult way to phrase it, really, but I think, if, as you'll know yourself, if you've been in the police service, you you put your brain somewhere else in terms of the emotional side of things because at the end of the day, we're there to do a job, and, and that's that job is not just about the recovery of a body. It's about, um, about do, doing a decent job for their family so that they, they have as much information as possible as to what's happened and why it's happened um, and and making sure that the emotions don't interfere with doing that good job it's something that's happened over the years in in, in other in, in other um, uh, similar sort of um, situations I've found myself in in relation to the deceased but um, you just um, you just have to detach yourself from the from the personal side of it and um, Otherwise, you get subsumed and you make mistakes. And and obviously, the the skill of being able to compartmentalise this and allowing you to, as you say, switch off any sort of negative association and more so kind of, and I think to some extent, the adrenaline of such an investigation allows you to kind of blanket and screen some of that negativity out to allow you to do the job to your best ability is an important skill set. Were you able to sort of debrief to the extent you could with family and friends to allow them to kind of understand what you're going through you have a mechanism to talk to people um i wouldn't say i shared it with family um but certainly with with colleagues um uh, yeah i i would say it was it was more in a, a sort of within the police family i mean sort of broadening that just slightly you, you mentioned about how do you deal with situations and um uh, and um and, you know, how did I sort of start to understand that this was going to be the career for me? Uh, obviously, um, you'll, you'll note, we'll probably come on to it later, about um, issues around football violence. But in those days, we used to police um, football um, so-called special trains, which might have anything up to uh, 600 supporters on, the vast majority of whom would be decent law-abiding people that were just going to have a fun day out watching a football game. But um, mm. there'd always be a sizable minority who who um, who wanted to do otherwise. And um, in those days, we used to police those trains with um, probably a sergeant and four PCs. Um, I used to work quite regularly with a guy who was an ex Coldstream guardsman who had worked in Northern Ireland, and um, he was a, a, a really somebody that I could rely on to watch my back, and I watched his. And um, even though there'd be five of us on the train, it didn't stop us um, engaging quite proactively in terms of dealing with that sort of, you know, that sizable minority. So, um, you know, we 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 faced um, sometimes, you know, quite considerable. Um, violence, but but I learned very quickly that it wasn't necessarily about numbers. If you if mm. you and I think it's, it goes to wider policing. You you know it's it's always good to have lots of police officers around you, but but if you've got determined individuals who have all got you know some real commitment, direction, uh, and a bit of passion, um, you can actually deal with pretty much anything. So um, you know we you know those situations are dealing with four to six hundred 
supporters on a train with no communication and no way of getting any assistance um, made you grow up quite quickly, really. But but hugely, hugely satisfying. There was one incident that you recall here in this in the material that you sent across to me, which is incredible to read in terms of the coverage of your forty three years. But very much in the early part of your career in the 1970s obviously the IRA were obviously around during that period and and at stages incredibly active in terms of the the explosive devices they're laying and and the conflict that was going on uh, in the United Kingdom across Ireland you recall here in November 74 as a young PC you were posted to Birmingham airport on the night of the pub bombings by the IRA until 77 what happened that night in 1974 remained the deadliest attack on mainland Britain since World War II. 21 died. The inquest into their deaths opened days later, but closed the following year after six men were convicted. Our top story is that a man who's confessed to being an IRA bomb maker has told BBC News he was part of the group responsible for one of the deadliest attacks of the Troubles, the Birmingham pub bombings. You were guarding the coffin of James McDade, an IRA bomber who died when his the bomb he was placing went off prematurely. You tell us about that incident because you describe it almost as as a very dark, eerie sense when you were travelling back into Birmingham to support with that with that investigation. Yeah, so I was one of um, a, a pretty large number of officers who were posted specifically to Birmingham Airport to, uh, as it were, guard the coffin. Um, whilst arrangements were made for it to be flown to Ireland. Um, uh, the, the, that took some time because there was a debate about whether it was going to be flying to Northern Ireland or, or to the south. And um, as you said, James McDade was an, an active IRA uh, um, a bomber who, who's, who tried to set a bomb at the GPO telephone exchange in Coventry and it went off prematurely. Um, we were at the airport and again remembering that you know we didn't all have mobile phones in those days and things but but rumor and speculation started to come into I was sat in the in the old fire station and I remember a senior officer sat in the middle of the room suddenly having somebody whispering in his ear and um, and then it, it quickly became clear that something had happened in Birmingham city centre. Um, and and that some bombs had, had detonated. So um, quite a lot of us were, in those days, we didn't have a lot of these public order vans. So a lot of us were put into uh, what were you know, middle, middle and red buses. And um, I was sat on the top deck of one of them as we travelled back into Birmingham. Um, and we passed Digbeth Police Station, which is just down the road from uh, the Rotunda. Uh, where one of, one of the pubs is just underneath the, the, the base of the rotunda. So not far away from the actual scene. And as we passed, there was this huge column of police officers in rows of three, uh, literally marching from Digbeth Police Station up towards the city centre. And it absolutely was eerie. I mean, I'm, I'm not quite old enough to remember the Blitz, but um, it was dark. It was... It was it was just a scene that's always stuck with me because um, you just don't see this sort of thing. Um, and and obviously those officers were, were making their way to a scene which would have been simply awful. Um, and I'm sure each one of them would have had their own thoughts as they were, as they were marching up towards it.
It's incredible. And then it was shortly after that period that <clears throat> you decided that you wanted to get involved in more detailed investigative work because noting that you spent three years in the CID in Birmingham and was promoted to a sergeant. Is that is that did you have a taste for kind of investigative work which kind of lured you into that area of expertise? Yeah, yeah, I uh, I I really enjoyed um, um, investigation. I mean, I I, I was a detective constable um, with just over three years service, which was in those days was really you know quite young, it's a bit scary as well. I was still learning very much of what I was doing, but um, and then I became a sergeant with uh, just under six years service. So um, you know, I remember turning up the first night of my shift and. The other sergeants on on the on the shift were were all, you know, long serving. Um, I was going to use the phrase old timers, but and I say that in a sort of affectionate way. But um, you know, they they were not of my age, and um, and here's me turning up, sort of brand new, you know, brand new uniform again, because obviously I'd just come back out of the CID and um, a bit daunting, but hugely huge. I mean, Birmingham City Centre is a fantastic place to learn your trade in terms of. Uh, um, the crime that goes on there, and a lot of it's transient, but uh, but just so much going on at, at any one time. Um, but yeah, I I very early on uh, I, I was never interested in traffic, so to speak, and um, and um, the idea of getting into the CRD was hugely attractive for, for myself. 1984, the 26th of March, is one of the three big events that we're going to talk about in your career. Career, you were a detective sergeant. And you're investigating the murder of um, David Harris. Tell us about that case. It looks incredible one to be part of. Yeah, I um, at this at this particular time, as I was a detective sergeant uh, working from uh, Steelhouse Lane, so the main city centre police station in Birmingham. And um, just outside Birmingham is a uh, city centre is an area called the Jewellery Quarter, and uh, in, in Hockley. Um, and on this day, the 26th of March, 1984, um, a licensee called David Harris um, was walking from his pub, the Woodman License House, in Hockley, um, towards a local bank, and he'd got this, the, the takings um, from the previous day with him. He was confronted by, um, by an individual, and it's probably important to stress there was only one individual, and there's never been any suggestion of any anything other than that um, and clearly uh, a struggle took place um, which which no doubt w w was was um, around um, an intention to steal these takings um, mr. Harris resisted and ultimately he was stabbed and died from his injuries um, I was uh, initially allocated to house-to-house uh, -house inquiries with a team of officers and another, a number of other officers, obviously, as you know, with all, with all major incidents, different people do different aspects of an investigation. And um, ultimately, uh, some other officers on the investigation arrested and charged an individual with the murder of David Harris. And he was remanded in custody to await Crown Court trial. Um, Sometime after this, I was I was approached um, uh, by an informant who gave me the nickname of another person who who he, the informant was adamant that this in fact was the person who committed the murder, um, and um, 
I did some inquiries, but at that time, but I just couldn't, I just couldn't find anybody that that matched the information given to me. Um, however, weeks before the trial of the first individual, I saw the informant again, and whilst he um, uh, was adamant that the nickname was right, he did provide me with um, with the identity of who he maintained was the right person um, who had committed this offence. So. Um, Part of that information was that subsequent to the murder, um, the, the the murderer had visited um, uh, a, a, a local magistrate's court, and on entering, he had uh, seen that they were searching people, and um, he was still in possession of the murder weapon, a knife. So he went into the toilets and hid it behind a system, uh, and the the the. Um, the informant uh, described the knife and um, I subsequently went to the magistrate's court and discovered that although the knife had been destroyed under normal circumstances, i.e. after so many months it was just just destroyed, um, a knife had in fact actually been found behind the cistern on that day that that he had described. Um, And I was able to get some sort of... um, drawings of, of, of what it looked like and and um, it was it was certainly similar to that described by witnesses of the murder and also um, the the pathologist uh, when he when he saw the the, the, the drawings said that it, 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 it could could have been a, a similar knife um, eventually um, I identified the, um, the the this this person um, and went to Nottingham, where by which where he'd gone to by this time, and um, arrested him, together with uh, two other officers. And we brought him back to Birmingham. Um, times have changed now because uh, people aren't rarely sort of interviewed in the early hours anymore uh, because of rest periods and changes in sort of legislation and things. But we interviewed him and and um, and uh, charged him with murder. Um, he admitted to being at the scene, um, but he denied actually stabbing the individual. So, um, so, so basically, the, the the first person who had been originally arrested and charged was released from custody, and the second person was charged and remanded in custody again to await trial. And uh, whilst whilst he was awaiting trial, I um, visited. Um, one of his ex-girlfriends and um, whilst there I I managed to confirm that she'd recently received a letter from him from prison and uh, when I asked her where the letter was she said oh I've I've ripped it up it's in the it's in the bin in the in the kitchen in the waste bin so I delved into the bin and um, recovered thankfully all the pieces of the letter and uh, pieced them together and then Within the contents of, of the letter was was an admission of of stabbing the licensee. Wow! So um, ultimately went for trial. He pleaded not guilty, but he was found guilty and sentenced to life imprisonment. What an incredible case! It must have been, you know. Because it, things were so very different back in '84 in terms of forensic and DNA procedures and interviewing capabilities and techniques, you know, 
do you you reflect on how that investigation was put together as to kind of how they kind of put homicide investigations together by today's standards? Um, Well, we we didn't have, um, for example, analysts didn't, crime analysts, intelligence analysts didn't exist. Um, I mean, I spent many years in different roles in intelligence within the police service, but in those days, in in the 80s, uh, many of the, I, I think I could probably kindly say that many of the intelligence aspects of the job were quite passive rather than mm. proactive. Um, so uh, intelligence was certainly different. Uh, forensics um, were different in the sense that things like DNA and, 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 and things like that were, were not so advanced. Um, even the systems within incident rooms um, uh you know, we're, we're still progressing around the use of technology um, and and the standard and evidence and the style of producing it, you know, the, you know, from pocketbook entries signed or unsigned, statements under caution signed or unsigned, and then and then tape recorded interviews. Life life continuously moved on in terms of what what I would say became better procedures and certainly better safeguards in terms of ensuring that justice was done. Um, in in respect of this particular case, uh, clearly, um, sadly, the wrong person was charged with with the uh, murder in the first place. But I think it's just worth reminding ourselves that it was the police who who put it right, so to speak. It, you know, it, um, and mm. um, uh, you know what what took place initially. Um, led to the wrong person being charged but the the perseverance of the of the you know the, the fact is that you know this in, this information wasn't disregarded it was pursued and and the right course of action resulted ultimately how do you manage the pressure of such an investigation in terms of being able to get results for 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 family there's often a bit of a political oversight in terms of a homicide in someone's particular area be it the local councillor or local MP you know you've got your commanders that you're reporting to how do you manage all that pressure that that, that comes with such a significant event it's a difficult one really because I think the answer to that is predominantly you work long hours so you you um, accept that your home life is is going to pay a price for that your children are going to see less of you your wife will see less of you um and you become totally focused on on what 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 you're doing um i, I think that still applies to policing today you know in terms of um uh, commitment but um you know murder in, in particular with murder i've been involved over the years in, in a, a number of murder investigations and there is no crime like it and when you're faced with with someone losing a life, I think all the other things just sort of go out the window. Really, you you just become absolutely focused on trying to solve the issue. Um, uh, you know, the the thought of losing a loved one through through an act of violence, you know, is something I can't imagine how I would cope with. But but I I think people just became very determined and very detached from everything else, and you know. 12 to 15 hours a day in, in, in these circumstances was was not unusual and we just did it we you'd work the hours go home go to bed um and get up again and go back to work 
because as a sergeant, you're not only worried about what you are, you're doing individually, but you're also looking after the team of detective constables. So you're actually having to think more broadly about the investigation. And were you reporting back to what they commonly refer to now as a senior investigating officer, often an inspector or chief inspector who's kind of leading the inquiry? Or are you kind of really at the pointy end in terms of making some of the significant decisions which led you to the path of your investigation? I know. I mean, there's always an SIO and you will, and you always have to refer back up the line of... Um, the, the chain of command. I mean, in this instance, clearly there was um, there was a detective superintendent, but I had a good relationship with him, and you know he he, he listened. He was a man who would um, who would listen, and um, that wasn't always the case with every senior officer I worked with as a younger officer. But um, he was prepared to listen to um, to to um, to arguments. Um, and in this particular case, obviously, he was he was it was difficult because um, clearly by arresting the second person, we were setting a chain of events off, which would lead to consequences and questions being asked. Um, but he was a man of principle; he listened to the arguments, and in fact, um, um, he, you know, he, he there was never any question we were going to go and arrest this second person. There was never going to be any debate about it, but. Um, yeah, I mean, police again within the police service, you do, you do need to be persuasive. There are senior officers and colleagues who will be risk averse, um, more more so than 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 others. So you know, you have to find ways of negotiating your way through um, different viewpoints. Some of the investigations that you've led on as a, de- a de- detective sergeant, get my words out, have been at very much the pointy and sharp end of football hooligans um, within your geographical area of responsibility. And I'm thinking more so 1987 when you ran Operation Red Card, which was an operation which was targeting football hooligans. But the catalyst of that operation was the very serious um, assault of an off-duty police officer who was attacked and had a pint glass smashed into his face requiring 32 stitches. Quite horrific injuries. Um, Football hooligans right up and down the country cause a high level of concern to many police services and police forces and often at Saturdays and Sundays require quite a number of support in terms of police aid which comes in and moves around in terms of policing large numbers of men and women who attend these events just purely to engage in antisocial behaviour. Tell us about Operation Red Card and, and what it was all about and, and your job in leading it. Yeah, um, in, in 1987 I was, um, I was uh, performing an intelligence role as a detective sergeant. It's a pretty new role and again I was still working in, in um, Birmingham City Centre. Um, the Zulu Warriors, Birmingham City's um, uh, uh, one of Birmingham City's um, hooligan groups. They were, were a, a diverse group of black, Asian and white um, youths and men who had an affiliation to Birmingham City Football Club, although it's fair to say that on, on many occasions they never, they never actually went near a football ground. But, <laughs> but that was their sort of, um, that was their affiliation. This is Zulu territory. People from outside Birmingham who don't know about the Zulus, they think it's a black thing. No, the Zulus has never been a black thing. It's a black, white, Asian, no matter what nationality you are, and you support Birmingham City, 
you're a Zulu. So it's just not just a black thing. We're warriors. We don't fear nobody. They started to make their presence known in a, in a number of the city centre pubs and clubs and um, were certainly um, uh, putting some of the licensees under pressure. Um, but as you said, the, there was an incident um, involving um, a guy called Harry Doyle, who sadly he's no longer with us now. But um, he was a, a, a PC who originated, I think, from Northern Ireland. He was a big lad, he could look after himself. But um, he went into a nightclub one night, off duty, no, no suggestion he was doing anything undercover or anything like that. But he was off duty and he made it known he was a police officer. And unfortunately for him, this was a haunt of um, a number of Zulu warriors and three prominent ones um, finally ended up um, attacking him and uh, he had this pint glass pushed into his face and um, resulted in uh, some quite horrific um, injuries. Um, I think it was felt that this was just a step too far in terms of the, the level of violence and the things were getting out of hand. So. I was given the task of coming up with some solutions and um, and and a way forward, and um, it probably casts back to what we were talking about earlier. Really, at the time, I'd got a chief superintendent uh, who was um, really quite forward-looking and um, and open to to um, not only open to uh, ideas but open to talking to senior, junior officers which again go back to the 80s, 70s and 80s sometimes you only ever saw the superintendent or the chief superintendent either for a telling off or a, or a, or a you know a once a year career review so he was quite accessible anyway i um, i became aware that the metropolitan police had set up a number of operations looking at um, some of their hooligan groups and I went down to London and had a look at what they were doing and um, came back very firmly of the view that we could do something similar but but potentially better because they relied pretty much solely on, on um, uh, the evidence of undercover officers and I wanted to do that but with the inclusion of far more technical aids, so the use of CCTV and photographic work plus, plus the use of a, a back office so to speak um, a team that would would gather the evidence as we went along. Um, the original operation, uh, when when it was finally agreed, and it took some it took some doing because it had to go up to um, uh, assistant chief constable operations level, but it eventually got approved. Um, originally, it was called Operation Rourke's Drift, which is very much about the the, the iconic film Michael uh, starring Michael Caine, where. 5,000 Zulu warriors attacked a British outpost in South Africa in 1879. Um, but then later on it, be it became more... Um, uh, they thought that red card sounded a bit better. So um, anyway, um, we we worked on it for six months. I, I ran the team on a daily basis full-time. I wasn't undercover. I, I managed the, um, the team. So I had six officers undercover two officers working as uh, overt spotters and then a couple of CID officers and we ran it as a, as a sort of major incident. Um, and um, it, it was hugely successful. I mean, they, um, within weeks we witnessed a fight. Um, it was an organised fight um, uh, outside a pub that we were actually keeping observations on. Over a hundred people were involved, and I think what what it taught me very quickly is just the speed of, of football violence and 
and it made me understand why often the police turn up and everybody's gone you know because this fight lasted less than uh, less than two minutes or less than a minute i think in fact during which time there was over 100 people in the street, weapons were being used, and a, and a, a 15-year-old lad was actually stabbed and nearly died. So, uh, we and if he had it done, we'd have had to cease the operation at that point because obviously we'd got it, um, we'd got the fight on video. It was a chaotic scene because we were filming through Venetian blinds, and um, and um, uh, it, but but actually, even though the video itself was um, was a uh, um, it was a you know a fairly brief video. Um, nevertheless, we identified 27 people on it, so we knew straight away we were going to get 27 people for violent disorder. Um, there were incidents, stress, quite stressful incidents that took place on one occasion. There was a kangaroo caught in the pub. Four of the undercover officers were confronted by a crowd of about 20. Um, people who surrounded them with snook accused and accused them of being police officers and um, they were uh, actually in the company of a target at the time a, a lad called Bruno whose who's nickname might might explain why he was called Bruno but he was a big thick-set lad and he took and they accused him of being a police officer as well so he didn't take too kindly of that so um, Fortunately, they managed to talk their way out of it, but uh, as a result of that afterwards, I gave them the option to withdraw from the operation, and in fact, two stayed in and two came out, so I brought in two new, two, two new ones afterwards. So, lots of things happened. However, um, using that combination of um, covert evidence and um, video and photographs, we ultimately arrested 67 people, uh, the vast, vast majority of whom just pleaded guilty at court because the evidence was overwhelming and none, none of the undercover officers ever had to give evidence in the witness box. Wow. And that's where you're making a real difference in terms of trying to improve and trying to reduce the number of violent incidences, not only to do with sport, but often well outside it in terms of these organised fights which go on because it is very much volatile dangerous and people do get seriously yeah, this hurt is, absolutely there's um i always when people have asked me over the years how i describe this uh, sort of hooligan gangs and i always describe it as a bit of an apple so at the core there was the real dedicated um uh, group of um of individuals many of whom had known each other from school or, or, or lifelong friends but they were absolutely up, up for toe-to-toe -to -toe violence uh, at, at any given time and amongst them were the, you know, in very much like police terms, the armourers, the spotters, the intelligence officers, the leaders, um, the doers. And then around them, in the outer, the outer uh, part, was what I would call the, the up-and-comers. So in, it, in the case of Zulu Warriors, the they were called the junior business boys. So these were the, the ones who wanted to come part of the main group and they were sort of still developing their craft as hooligans. And then the outer layer were just the sort of the, the Saturday, the Saturday warriors really, the ones who'd had a who have a few drinks and perhaps get involved on the on the periphery of the violence, but never might not even make physical contact with anybody, mm. but would claim to have been present and involved. Um, and and so those sort of three elements made up a very complex sort of tribalistic sort of. Um, structure really but as i say very very much similar to police organization but but with speed 
the difference with the police is that you know we've got radios we direct resources they have to come from somewhere <laughs> with hooligans they just move around very quickly and 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 are very fluid in terms of how they move was it an operation that you were very proud to be part of and lead on oh hugely yeah it 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 had never been it had never been done outside oh sorry it had never been done in the west midlands um, there was an operation going on in Leeds at the time, and subsequently Manchester also set one up. But um, the difference was that as the, the Metropolitan Police cases, unfortunately, um, although there were a number of convictions, they were subsequently overturned um, because of the nature of the evidence, so heavy reliance on on um, on evidence from officers without that supporting corroboration of video and technical stuff. So um, following on from, from Red Card, we actually supported and advised uh, um, an operation called Growth, Get Rid of Wolverhampton Towns Hooligans, which is again in the West Midlands. But they used the sort of knowledge and skills that we'd um, honed during Red Card um, to good effect. And, and they, they actually arrested over 80 people, I think, in the... Whoa. In the following months so wow. so yeah it, something different I, I i really enjoyed throughout my career um doing things that had a, a challenge to them in terms of uh sorry not not uh, uh, well everything's a risk in, in in policing but um you know i was prepared to to take risks which i was sure you know with careful with careful planning um could could be could be minimized We've spoken about your leadership and determination in overcoming a complex homicide. We've talked about your leadership on football hooligans and investigating serious and violent crime. I wanted to to, to kind of follow up now here. In 1987, when you ran Operation, um, your property operation, where you looked at stolen property of people that had you already stolen the property and then you're looking at obtaining it back and gathering the evidence through covert means. And and this is, again, one of the first times this has been carried out in West Midlands. Are you able to tell us a little about this operation? I think it's Operation Portdale, a covert operation where you're, where you're working in, in, in a new environment, new techniques and new equipment. Yep, it was actually in 1994. So I was a Detective Chief Inspector at Walsall. Um, and um, a, a great area. I mean, obviously, I'm a Brummies, you, 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 you can tell, but um, uh, Walsall's part of the black country. So um, some of the areas of Walsall are, are highly, highly deprived, some great local communities, but lots of deprivation. And much of that deprivation is driven, was driven um, by um, large numbers of, um, of drug, drug addicts, um, so pretty much routine use of cannabis and at the top end, um, a, a lot of use of heroin and um, uh, ecstasy and um, amphetamine. Um, to, to, to actually fund the, these lifestyles, and many of them were lifestyle criminals, um, clearly offences of burglary, theft from motor vehicle um, specifically, were, were really um, on the rise and, and very troubling. Um, so... Again, I, I sort of wanted to look at a different way of um, of approaching the, the problem. So, um, w you know, we knew where the offences were occurring and we knew where our lifestyle burglars and car thieves um, were living. 
And so I came up with the idea of um, a, a sting operation, the, the first of its kind in the West Midlands. Um, I was aware that um, um, in London, again, previously the Metropolitan Police had run an operation um, involving a, a second-hand shop uh, where um, they purchased property from from criminals. And, and I think the point to make while I'm thinking about it is that uh, you know the police are not allowed to um, incite uh, criminals to commit offences, so you can't be an agent provocateur. We were purely looking at aspects of trying to recover stolen property that had already been stolen, so the offences had already been committed. So um, I eventually got permission uh, to set up an operation that they called, called Port Dial. And it was a very simple approach. We we had a van. Inside the back of the van, it was covered with, um, for want of a better word, page three type articles and <laughs> and um, and uh, plastered all over the the inside walls. Um, but behind which were covert cameras. And then in the front seat um, of the van, the front passenger seat, we had a picture postcard um, of um, of a lady. And uh, behind that picture postcard was a pinhole camera. So um, we created flyers where we appealed for um, uh, for uh, electronic goods, mobile phones, computers, TVs. Um, and we circulated the flyers around some of the crime hotspot areas, not targeted at particular individuals, just hotspot crime areas. Uh, and we had a team of six officers working undercover, two of you know two two of whom working um, at any one time, and with a dedicated phone number on the flyer. And within hours, we we started to get phone calls, and um, we, within twenty four hours, we'd already we'd, we'd already purchased stolen property. Um, so what we would do is quite simply is we would get the thieves to load the property into the back of the van so we'd capture them on video in the back of the van mm. and then we would get them to sit in the front seat to pay them at which point they would look at the picture of the lady um uh, behind which the pinhole comes and without exception pretty much mm. they'd go well that's a nice picture and we'd get a nice full frontal facial picture of the individual which either allowed us to identify them immediately or allowed us to identify them later on um, we ran it for uh, a, a few months and eventually we made uh, 40 arrests in coordinated raids. We recovered drugs, counterfeit currency, stolen property worth over £100,000. And, um, and um, surprise, surprise, the burglary rate went down for a while. So how do you, when you, you know, you're, you're installing this van for the first time, you're using techniques which, you know, haven't been used previously before in that area to try and combat this stolen property pandemic, which is clearly going on in the environment. What are some of, how do you overcome some of the risks which officers can, would go up against? So have you got a team of officers ready to pounce in case things don't go as according to plan? Yeah, um, on some occasions we would have um, what was known in those days as um, affectionately as DOT teams, the Divisional Observations teams. So on some occasions we would run par run them in parallel um, to to the officers who were actually in the van. 
Um, mm. But um, the, the the strength of undercover officers, um, you know, I mean, got, I've got immense um, sort of respect for for the bravery that these individuals show. But um, the reality is that they, you know, they the instruction was if in doubt just get out you know and um uh, they, they they knew uh, they were they were ex- they were all experienced officers and um you know they they knew that whilst they were putting themselves in potentially harm's way they also knew when to, when to back off and when to stay out of the way so so there there would be um um we were able to monitor um the movement of the van um, by use of technic- technology, we were able to uh, shadow them on occasions, depending on what, where where they were going and what the potential targets were, uh, by using uh, additional plainclothes officers. Um, and certainly, um, uh, we, when they were operational, there would always be officers available to get to them if needs be. But but that doesn't negate the fact that in those initial moments and minutes they you know they were on their own so incredible stuff i'm um wanting to fast forward a little bit here because 2003 was a big year for you professionally in your career you were awarded and a recipient of the queen's police medal an incredible honor to receive and to be bestowed upon a police officer for their incredible service to policing but equally in 2003, you deployed to Cyprus. And international deployments always really intrigue me because I don't think the greater public always know where there are, sp- specifically for UK policing, where there is British sovereignty and a, and a requirement to have some level of rule of law um, to a UK standing in certain countries. And Cyprus was one of those. Are you able to tell us, firstly, the Queen's Police Medal, did it come before or after your Cyprus trip? That might have been, must have been an incredible honour to receive that with friends and family. Um, and equally, the deployment to Cyprus must have been a fascinating one. Um, uh, the answer is I, I was awarded the Queen's Police Medal in the 2003 New Year's Honours list, um, which was uh, announced then um, two, literally two, less than two months before I retired from West Midlands Police, having been successful in applying for... The role of chief superintendent with the sovereign basis police um so a bit of a high i suppose you could say in terms of a career um i was hugely proud of you know that that sort of that 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 moment you know receiving the letter through the post so um i didn't actually re- go you, you can use the letters immediately after your name when you when you've notified but i didn't actually go to um to see the Queen at Buckingham Palace until later in in uh, in two thousand and three. So um, I actually went to Buckingham Palace in in the uniform of sovereign base police officer as opposed to West Midlands Police, my old force. But um, I mean, just going back to Cyprus, but very very quickly, um, Cyprus was granted independence in nineteen sixty from um, from the British, um, but they retained two fifty square mile areas. Which are called sovereign bases. One at Decalia to, towards the uh, the northern area uh, near Larnaca, um, and the other one at Akrotiri, and uh, which is near Limassol. Um, uh, the R- the RAF base is based at uh, Akrotiri, uh, and I became the divisional commander for the sovereign bases police um, uh, division uh, covering the RAF base. 
a number of villages surrounding it and, uh, and, and an area called Episcopi. So it's a civilian police, the sovereign base is police. Um, the administrator for, for the bases is a military officer, but is also the um, uh, in charge of, of, of all aspects of, um, of life within those bases, which includes um, a, a small police force who actually wear a British police uniform but are predominantly either Greek or Turkish Cypriots who all speak English. Um, and then there's a very small number of um, um, British police officers, predominantly retired. So the chief constable and the deputy and the two divisional commanders um, uh, are all, are all um, retired um, uh, former British police officers. So um, it's a style of policing obviously in another country which um you know you have to adapt to in terms of uh, uh you know cyprus is you know is is a is a, a european part of the eu but it's also quite close to lebanon syria and that it's got sort of some sort of middle eastern sort of uh, background as well so so uh, um and also you've got a, a relationship that you need to work on both with the military and also with the Republic of Cyprus police, who police the remainder of Cyprus, and um, so quite a challenging role. And uh, but uh, but in a, I once um, I once stood on a beach at Curium in full uniform, and this lady from Liverpool approached me and asked me for some directions. And um, and after I gave them to her, she said she complimented my on my um, English, which I thought was quite amusing. Really. I said that's because I am English, though, so, and she couldn't get over what how, uh, what what a, what a British police officer was doing standing on a beach in the middle of uh, in in near Limassol, you know. But um, you know, just uh, I think I think that just sums up for me, uh, you know, my police career. I've been very fortunate to have been given opportunities throughout my service to to do different things and experience different things. And many of them have been hugely challenging, but all of them have been, without exception, hugely rewarding. Um, and that's when people talk to me about the police. That's why I always say, look, you know, it's a great job. It's a great career. It's not easy. It will change your life in terms of your perspective on many things, but it's still a brilliant vocation. And, and what better than to serve the public and do a good job. So 2011, you retired from the police service after nearly 43 years in the police. Your last two years were spent back in Birmingham as the operations superintendent, where you spent much of your time again involved in the policing of travelling football fans as a silver commander, during which time you directed several proactive operations against hooligan elements. In essence, you started and finished your police career in the same location, which is a nice way to finish up your policing service that must have been a very pleasant experience for you just to finish where you started is almost like a complete chapter of a book yeah absolutely and um you know sad i mean i remember going you know i i i think as many sort of retired officers try and do i i got as many days out operationally as i could in my last sort of um month you know just to just to get out there and and to feel the wind in my face again so to speak and um you know, I, I made sure um, I made sure, in, you know, that I was still able to sort of effectively go out operationally. I mean, okay, senior officers don't get out that much as, perhaps as much as they should. Um, but um, 
yeah, a, a huge mixture of, of, of sadness, but also um, just gratitude for the opportunities I was given. 2013, 2014, you started writing and co-writing um, with others on quite a number of books, which have been incredibly successful. Tell us about your life outside of police. Um, I, um, after, after my sort of retirement in 2011, I, I, I did a a lot of um, work, self-employed as a consultant around community and crime and community safety. And then in 2014, I, or 13, 14, I sort of fell into writing. I I, um, I I was contacted by somebody about the football operation, Red Card, and the, the upshot is that we eventually wrote a book called Hunting the Hooligans, uh, which was the, the book about Operation Red Card. Uh, and I sort of reflected on this. I, I'm, you know, I'm very, very much an amateur, but I, I, I'd, I had it in my mind that if I was going to write one book, I'd try and write six. And um, I'm currently up to 25, so 24 of them have been published, and I'm waiting for the 25th one to um, to be published this year. And we'll see what happens after that. I. Um, Somewhere, somewhere around policing, um, uh, and um, yeah, some are, are, are almost bio, biographical. Um, I've written about my visits to India in a book called Proud to Serve. I've, I've written about the history of West Midlands Police when it was formed in 1974. As, as you indicated, I've been lucky to co-write with a number of people. I, I wrote a book called Birmingham's Front Line, which, was, which includes the murder I, we, we spoke about earlier. But I've also written some fiction books and um, and some books with my wife, who's a, my wife. My, my wife's a Greek Cypriot, so we've written about the, her life in Cyprus and about her father, who uh, who um, uh, had a very interesting life uh, involved in um, in various aspects of the history of Cyprus. Which, during one of the COVID lockdowns, we translated his diaries from Greek to English. Sadly, he passed away four years ago. But but we we. We busied ourselves really during that period and tried to just keep going like everybody else was. Um, and, and on a lighter note, I've written a small, few, you know, slang books, police slang, and things like that. So I, I found writing very cathartic. Um, it's all, uh, you know, much of police history um, is lost, and to you know, and and my view on life is, you know, if we can record just bits of it, and I like getting recollections from retired officers and people who. You know, once once they've gone, we've lost it forever. So, um, I've I've really enjoyed that aspect of a, of a, you know of, of writing. I wouldn't say there's a lot of money in writing, but but a, there's again a huge sense of achievement. I think so. So I'm happy with what I managed to do, and it's it's given me a, it's given me a, you know another 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 thing to uh, to keep me going through through retirement. It's incredible, really. I'm looking here as you're talking at some of the books you've written. Out of all the ones that you've had some part in or you've written yourself or you've co-authored, which which stands out for you as being a personal favourite? Um, I would have... Uh, well, I'd have to point towards Hunting the Hooligans because uh, it, it started... Well, for, for a number of reasons, but because it started my writing career. So it was a sort of... Um, and because, as you mentioned earlier, it's a, it's a job I'm hugely proud of um but i i'm 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 proud of all of them for different reasons i mean proud to serve uh, we didn't have time to to mention it but i was involved in a, a project to do the 
Foreign and Commonwealth Office about forced marriages. So again, I'm, I, in 2001, I managed to go to India three times to uh, create links with um, with the Indian Police Service, and I, I kept diaries, and it just gave me. Uh, I always wondered why I got these diaries, but when when I when I started writing it, I suddenly realised it. It just gave me the structure to create a book, and I really believe strongly that diversity and um, the ability to attract um, all sections of society into the police service, both then and clearly today, is really critical to the success of the job. So I'm pretty proud of that because we did a lot around diversity and and recruitment um, in the days when I in two you know two thousand and one two thousand two. Um, so, so yeah, I'm proud of that. But they, they've all got their own little, um, they've all got their own little backstory, really, as to, um, as to, uh, you know, which, which I prefer. But um, um, it, it's, 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 everybody's got a book in them, it, and I always say that to them. The hardest bit is writing the first word, and once you've done that, you've just got to keep going. So. I think in terms of history, you know, we owe it to our future generations, particularly with the police service, because that's how we learn from, you know, past mistakes and past experiences. Well, Michael, the last hour's gone shooting by. You know, it's been fascinating to hear of some of the key stories and operations that you're incredibly proud of and have had a massive impact in policing you know north of the north of the border up up here in the UK and and some incredible recollections of some really quite groundbreaking investigational work, which I think has obviously set a precedent for those that have followed behind you. You know, 43 years of policing service is not often you come across many people that have had that many years of policing under their belt. So I think on behalf of my colleagues and I here at the podcast, thank you ever so much for your service. Thank you ever so much for um, for, for coming on the show and, and giving, giving us an insight into your life in policing. We Congratulations on receiving the Queen's Police Medal. An incredible honour to, to receive, as you said, in 2003, getting that in the New Year's Honours. And on behalf of me and my entire team here on the podcast, we wish you all the best with any future books that you're going to be writing. Look forward to I've already just purchased the Hooligans book myself as we've been talking. I'm looking forward to that arriving through the mail, and I'll, I'll have a good read of that. But thank you ever so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Ollie, and good, good luck with the podcast. Protect and Serve is a Mash Pumpkin production, hosted by Oliver Lawrence, research and questions by Oliver Lawrence and Robert Wynn Stanley, produced, edited, and sound designed by Jack Lawrence. 